0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, it's a famous passage often quoted at Christmas time. And uh, it's, it really, you can't understand the magnitude or the weight of Isaiah chapter eight, I mean chapter nine rather, unless you look at what is happening in chapter eight. And in chapter eight, uh, it's, it's the pronouncement of judgment. Matter of fact, the whole book, it's a prophecy to Israel, to the wayward people of God. And it's, it's judgment and hope. Continually through this book, and it really reveals the heart of God that as a father, even in discipline, He leaves us with hope. And so He tells the children of Israel, He said, "Assyria is coming, and He's going to invade you, Uh, but then He'd give them hope." And so it's this pronouncement of judgment, of invasion, the exile, and all of this, but Isaiah keeps pushing forth hope. And again and again, he gives these messianic prophecies of the coming deliverance for the people of God, even though they're under the judgment of God. And so we pick this up in Isaiah chapter 8, and let's begin to read in verse 16, Uh, bind up the testimonies, seal the teaching. Among my disciples I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And so it's saying, there's these faithful disciples are saying, we're, 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 gonna, we're believing in the Lord. And then verse 19, people inquire of their God. Should they, not, uh, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land. Now listen to this pronouncement of judgment before we get into Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is a glorious chapter, but you got to realize it's even more glorious. The sun coming up after an especially dark night is a little more glorious. So listen to what he says here. And when um, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry... And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. Listen to this phrase, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thank God we're not stopping there this morning. Let's go home. That's kind of a downer. But now listen to chapter 9. This is an amazing thing. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He's extending hope to the very ones that he's, ex- he's, re- he's executing his dis- discipline upon. He says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, that, that anguish of doom uh, or the gloom of anguish is going to last for a season. But God is going to extend deliverance. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are the northernmost tribes. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, some translations. And so they would be the first ones to be invaded, but God's gonna extend to them... uh, a great light. So look at what it says in verse two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff on for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. He's referring back to the story of Gideon and saying that the rod that was put across their back, the yoke of oppression, is going to be broken in this hour, this, this future time of hope. I love the verse that Jennifer uh, shared this morning when she did the transition. Uh, you, it says, return to your stronghold, you prisoners of hope you love that? Yeah. Psalm 119 verse 49 says this, O Lord, remember thy promises upon which thou hast caused me to hope. It's somebody in a, a, a frustrating situation and they're bringing God's promises back to him. They say, God, it's your fault. My hopes are up and I'm holding you to the promises." You're the one that awakened hope within me. And now I'm asking you to deliver on your promise. You know, the Lord loves when his people act like that. We become a prisoner of hope. We're bound to a promise. There are situations in which I cannot despair because I've been chained to a promise from God who is not a man that he can lie. So he says, return to your stronghold. You know, there are strongholds of evil and there are strongholds of good. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, "We." uh, he, he talks about we demolish strongholds, we demolish arguments that have set themselves against the knowledge of God. So Paul's defining a stronghold as an argument. Now there are arguments against the knowledge of God And there are strongholds or knowledge or arguments for the knowledge of God. And that's the type of stronghold that we're to retreat to. Retreat to your belief system. Strengthen your belief system. Become a prisoner of hope. It's going to be your defense in the time of of trial and the, the time where the enemy fights against you. Become a prisoner of hope. So he goes on, he says... They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. That's verse three. And they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. Listen to verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be fuel for the fire. God's saying, I'm gonna send my fire and the enemy's boots that used to trample in the blood. And all the garments that are rolled in blood, they're gonna be fuel for the fire. It's an amazing, amazing passage. And it's written to a people, before they are disciplined, God announces their discipline, and it's going to be an invasion and an exile. They're gonna be carried off to another land. But even before that happens, God, because he's such a good father, extends hope to them and says, hey, on the backside, I'm gonna love on you. I'm gonna deliver you. I'm gonna break the rod of your oppressor. It's an amazing, amazing passage. So how is God going to bring about this drastic turn of events? The people of God are gonna be taken into exile and they're gonna come under the discipline of the Lord because of their rebellious hard hearts. But God extends this hope and I will deliver you at the end of your discipline. So Israel waits with bated breath. How is God gonna deliver his people? Who is this deliverer? And as they wait, look at the next verse. As they wait with bated breath, what will he look like? They're looking for this great conqueror to enter onto the stage of history. And what happens? goo goo ga, ga. A little baby climbs onto the stage. A little baby in swaddling clothes. It's the deliverer. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the angel's message. And really, it was a reference to this passage when the angel came and announced to the shepherds, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I I said with tongue in cheek, the shepherds must have looked at each other and said, I don't even know we were pregnant. He said, unto you, but it was from an angelic perspective, saying to you as the human race, there is a baby being born this night in the city of David. And it's a reference to this passage. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That is God's answer. And when we were talking out of that passage, it's so fascinating to me that the angel said, To the shepherds, he said, this shall be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's going to be the sign, the indication. It's going to be the coordinates for the treasure. You're going to know when you've happened upon it, when you see these markers. It's going to be an infant. It's going to be a a tiny, helpless, vulnerable little baby. But it's the sign of God's breaking into human history. And we talked in that message about how it's so important for us to to realize that God starts things with an infant expression. Now in this wonderful passage, he he refers not only to the infant expression, but to the full full grown maturity of his deliverance. A child is born and a son is given. And Isaiah's juxtaposing these two ideas, the beginning and the end, the child and the full-grown son. And understand that in the Hebrew, as well as in the Greek, there's a very clear difference between child and son. We see this really borne out in the New Testament, that we have been given the right to be called the children of God. The Greek word is technon. It literally means born one. And we are partakers of the divine nature, that we have been born again. But when we're born, we're born as little baby Christians, and we need to learn to walk in, the, in all that God has given us. So what does he do? He gives us the spirit of adoption. And we think of adoption in an American sense where someone from another biological family is brought into another family given the name of that family and given an inheritance. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But that's not what New Testament adoption is talking about. New Testament adoption is taking somebody that's in the family and they become full grown and so then you award them the position of a full grown son or daughter. It's called sonship in the Greek. It's hoisis. It's uh, sonship or adoption depending on what translation you read. And so when we talk about the rights to become the sons of God, it's talking about that dynamic. And in Roman Grecian culture, uh, you know, wealthy people would give charge of their children to a, a, uh, an individual called a pedagogue. Matter of fact, the law is referred to in Galatians as a pedagogue, a, a male nanny that would raise the child. And what he would do is he would, he would put, he would through external pressure and discipline of the nanny, he would cause them to do what they would one day do by internal discipline on their own. And once they did it by internal discipline, they moved into a ceremony called sonship. All through ancient culture, there's, there's different ceremonies that are like that. You know, the Jewish culture had their bar mitzvahs and they would, uh, you know, a child at the age of 12 would go through a, a bar mitzvah and it's a transition into adulthood and they would be treated differently after that. The Roman Grecian culture didn't have that hard line, but they recognized there was a level of maturity that they had to move into before they could have the full rights of a son. And so when we talk of the spirit of adoption, it's really that internal pedagogue, the internal instructor, the teacher that lives within us and disciplines us to bring us to maturity so that we can walk as sons. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he said, uh, they who are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. He's saying that when you're led by the spirit, you've reached a level of maturity. Just because you're born again doesn't mean you've, you are yet a son. There's a, there's a process between the two. And that's what Isaiah is speaking of. There was a child born, but there was a son given. And in between that was the work of redemption. It's very important that we understand this because there's a lot of rich truths for the Christian life that are behind that span of time, that gap in Jesus' life. He was our great example. Hebrews chapter 5 says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. I don't know about you, but I used to really struggle with that passage. How could Jesus learn obedience by the things he suffered? I thought he was always obedient. And how could he be made perfect I thought he was created perfect, but it implies in Hebrews 5 that there was a process of him moving into perfection through his life. See, he was under the Spirit. When Jesus went down in the water and came up, he was under the Spirit. He was being trained. When he was declared, he was his coming out there in the river Jordan where he was declared into sonship. And so Jesus was going through this process just like we do. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2 it says, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything uh, is made perfect, would make Jesus perfect through suffering. It was fitting that that would happen. You know why? Because that's how you and I will be made perfect. Again, not, not a good place to land this morning. But we're going to land on a high note. We're going to go home happy. But the fact is, God's taking us from technon to hoesis. He's taking us from being a born one to the son. And we operate in the full right. See, in in the Roman Grecian culture, a little child didn't have, you you could have an heir to all the estate, but he was under the slaves in that family. The servants and slaves would pull rank on that child, even though he would be the inheritor, They would pull rank on him and tell him what to do. Why? Because even though he had the nature of the father, he didn't yet have the character of the father. And that is precisely the difference between being a born one, a child, and being a son. A a born one, a child, has the nature of the father, the DNA, the genetic code. When we're born again, we are partakers of the divine nature. But when that begins to express itself in behavior, that's when we begin to move into maturity. And the real mark of sonship is they who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And so God is looking to grow us up. And that's exactly what he did with Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, the beginning of redemption was that unto us a child is born. Jesus, God himself, took on human flesh. Never again could God say, I'm gonna wash my hands of humanity and start over. See, it wasn't just for a few short 33 years on on earth that Jesus became a man. We know this because in 1 Timothy chapter one, it's either 1 or 2 Timothy. Uh, See Bill Culver after service, he'll let you know. But uh, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, it says that we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now this is after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. He's now seated at the right hand of God, but Paul still refers to him as a man. We have a human brother that sits on the throne of the universe. And in Jesus becoming a human embryonic infant, He wed himself to man for time and eternity. He could never say, I'm gonna wash my hands of humanity. I'm gonna start from scratch, a new race of men. Because he had bound himself to our created role. And so Jesus, unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. It was not enough for Jesus to be born a human being. It was the beginning, but not the end. There, Theologically speaking, there are things Jesus could have purchased for you by his birth that his death after his perfection would not have secured for you. You can put it this way. Jesus' birth and him becoming a human infant, not inheriting a sinful nature like you and I have, you and I had at birth and were delivered from that, bro, that, that we have been given a new nature. But Jesus was not born of an earthly father. He wasn't born with a sin nature. So he was born innocent but not perfect. That's what Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 5 is alluding to. Now his innocence was crucial. His innocence could take care of your past debt. Your past failures, but it made no provision for future strength to overcome future temptation. His innocence could pay the debt of your failure in your past temptation, but it was his perfection that gave you the ability to not succumb to future temptation. So in his innocence, he could make you, he could make you free from sin, the penalty of sin. But Jesus did more than that. He gave you a new nature and that new nature wasn't simply one that had never sinned and, but had never been tempted. It was that the nature of Jesus was that he faced every temptation that man has ever been tempted with and he passed it with flying colors. Oswald Chambers has some wonderful writing on this. Uh, Oswald Chambers, he wrote the book, My Utmost for His Highest. He's got some great writing on this. He's the only person I've ever heard talk about this other than me, and I got it from him. He talks about, he said, the innocence of Jesus was not the innocence of our order of things. He said, innocence is nothing to be bragged about because it's never been challenged. Innocence has just been shielded from evil. It's been shielded from temptation. Whereas holiness has gone through the fire and passed the test. It's been enticed. It's it's had the opportunity to sin. And that's why it was crucial that Jesus be tempted in every way such as us. The old saying that when sin comes a knock and I send Jesus to answer the door, because he's already conquered it. It's not that I've just been forgiven. See, when I first got saved, I had—I didn't understand this. I understood that I was forgiven of the past. But in my mind, when I got saved, I was forgiven of the past. But now I have to really, I'm walking on pins and needles because I don't want to ruin this thing. And I remember one day in Teen Challenge, 18-year-old kid, came off the streets, got saved out of homelessness and alcoholism, and now I'm, I'm living for Jesus. I'm 18 years old and I'm mowing a lawn and something happened and it made me mad and I cussed under my breath. And I remember this condemnation just crashing in upon me. And this is literally what I thought. And the enemy was taking advantage of my faulty theology. I was so broken about it. I thought, God, you gave me a perfect life. You gave me another chance. And now I put a mark on it. Unbeknownst to me, I'd put a lot of marks on it before that moment. I just wasn't as sensitive to the Spirit But see how I I thought, now I had another opportunity to to live the perfect life and now I've destroyed that and there's no way to redeem this one. It was a very twisted theology. And the enemy was leveraging my sincerity against me to cause me to live in condemnation. The, The purpose of accusation is to make God your adversary. If you own the identity the accuser places upon you, all of a sudden you're at odds with God. And so we've got to own the identity God gives to us. And that's found in the son has been given. It's not just a child has been born. It wasn't that merely that Jesus was innocent. Had that been enough when Herod sent the edict out, kill all the children under two years old, then Jesus could have been slain in the cradle. We could have got this thing going about 31 years earlier. It wasn't enough. When Jesus was on the edge of the cliff, and remember they went to push him off, and he just walked right through them. Why? Because he wasn't ready yet. There were still things he had to go through. He had to be tempted in every way uh, like us, and yet be sinless. Philippians chapter 2 sums it up like this. Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was perfected in that final act on the cross where he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He committed himself to the Father's will, becoming obedient even unto death. I believe when Jesus cried out, it is finished. That's what he was referring to. God's plan for man. The completion of not just, it wasn't his divine nature that needed perfecting. It was the completion of his human nature. He was made perfect and then Could become the source of eternal salvation because the salvation of God is more than merely forgiving you, it's empowering you to live as a righteous man or woman of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul could say to the Corinthians, he rebukes them and says, Knock it off, guys. You are acting like mere men. You ever heard someone say, I'm only human? You as a believer don't have that luxury of using that phrase because you're not merely human. You are a new race of men. We are God men. We are partakers of the divine nature. We we have become one with him. We are partakers, recipients. The grace of God lives in us to live above those things. Because the life that lives in us is not merely innocent and sinless and has never sinned. It's also holy and it's, it's confronted every temptation and came out the other side, maintaining its purity. Yeah. That's the life we've been giving in salvation. Now, when we are born again, It's very similar to this passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We're given the blessing of being a technon, a born one. We're born again. But the life of God within us can barely make itself known. But as we grow and we cooperate with grace, we begin to move into sonship. And the seed of God within us begins to take over. You ever seen a concrete parking lot? Or I remember when I was a kid, grew up in Gary, New Duluth. It was it was the the uh, the very ethnically diverse end of Duluth, Minnesota. We were the only like Swedes there, you know, white haired, white skinned, blonde uh, haired kids. It was very ethnically diverse in that end of town. And it was an old area of town. All the sidewalks were all broken up and a lot of them were broken up by trees. And it was always interesting to me that these trees, what would happen is a little seed, a stray seed would fall in a crack in a concrete slab but given water and light and given time that thing would literally take over and those slabs would have to give way to the strength of the tree. And it's a vivid picture of our life in God. You may have some really stubborn concrete from your upbringing, some really twisted views and and misunderstandings and some real stubborn sin patterns, but I'm telling you what is more important than having a strong no, which is important, is having a strong yes. Yes if you will water that seed and bring it into the light of his presence, I'm telling you, over time, those concrete slabs will have to give way because the oaks of righteousness will begin to exert themselves. We don't have time to get into this this morning, but I think that's that's why it says in the gospel story of Mary, a virgin, betrothed. I was going to preach on this this year, but I'm I'm out of Sundays, so I'm just going to throw it in here, okay? A virgin betrothed. See, her virginity was a reference to what she hadn't done, and that's good. That was was a good thing. That was part of holiness, but her betrothal was an expression of what she's committed to, and there's a lot of believers who are virgins, but they don't think as someone betrothed. So they're always no, 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 no. They're exercising their no. No, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. And the secret to having a strong no is having a strong yes. Because when a young virgin is taken with her betrothed one, her groom, all of a sudden, she doesn't need it. It doesn't take a lot of effort to say no because she knows about the future yes. And when we have, when he wins our heart, We don't have to worry. A lot of those things just fall away. It's like it says, in his presence is pleasures forevermore. My life was consumed with sin. I was addicted to adrenaline rushes and getting high because I wanted to be happy. And to me, happy came in pill form and bottle form. And at first... When I got saved, man, Friday nights were so hard. I was in Teen Challenge, so I didn't have much of an opportunity to sin in that regard, which was good. I needed that kind of sheltered environment. But luckily, what happened while I was in Teen Challenge that 14 months, Jesus won my heart. And so by the time I got out, I wasn't tempted with drugs anymore. I wasn't tempted with those things. Why would I settle for a counterfeit high when I have the pleasures at his right hand? When I can go into his his presence and experience him. See, it's about getting a strong yes, falling in love with him. It's a virgin betrothed. Christianity is not just about being the pure virgin. It's about being the virgin betrothed. Your heart is one by another. And that's why you can live in purity. When you're really captured by the greater thing. And the reason a lot of believers struggle is because they think of Christianity as a diet. They're really, really hungry. And they know there's hope. I tell you what. This time of year is bad, okay? <laughs> People give me cookies and I feel obligated. I want to I be a good steward. You know, I mean, as a pastor, you know, what if someone comes up and says, Did you like those cookies? I can't lie. And it would seem insulting to say, well, I didn't eat them. So as a good pastor and as a good steward of God's provision, I partake of these things. And I tell you what, if we had one more month, my buttons would be like this. I I have my big clothes, my medium clothes, and my little clothes. My little clothes, I can't get in. These are my medium ones, and it's kind of hard. And my big ones I gave to my dad. And honest to God, this morning, I thought, I need to call dad before he comes up for Christmas and ask him for that one shirt back, because I think that one will fit again. Okay, I digress. And I told Kathy, I said, Kath, buy some of those chocolate covered treats. Dave, you don't need those. I said, but it's Christmas. So I thought, she's right. I don't. And she came home with two boxes. And I keep going by the, the cupboard, just one, and I'll pop them in, just another one. Oh, it's not good. Let's pray right now. But a lot of believers live their Christian life as though Christianity is a diet. And like me, they fail miserably at this time of year. See, the other thing, okay, this is confession. It's good for the soul. The other thing I do is I know, hey, this is, the fast is next month. And so, I know, that is not good. Because suddenly, over the last 13 years, my entire life revolves around that 21 days. I, oh, it's getting towards the fast. I can afford it. Because I'll lose it on the fast. You know what I have found? That every year... When I was 38 years old and we started this fast, it didn't come back on as quickly as it does as a 55-year-old man. That's another trail we need to, okay, reel it in. A lot of believers live the Christian life like a diet. They still want those chocolate-covered cherries, and they walk by the, the cabinet all the time longing for them, and it's a real struggle, they even put a lock, padlock on it. Woo, woo, give their wife the key, and then they take off the hinges on the other side. You know. <laughs> but we've been given a new nature. Our appetites have changed, and when we fall in love with Him, John Wesley had this wonderful message. and, and then in those days, he was he was a pastor in the seventeen hundreds. In those days, there you, you think. You think we're long winded today? Their titles were longer than many of our sermons. And it was called something to the effect of the overwhelming power of one desire over another desire. That was the name. It sounds boring, but it was really a good message. And it was about this very thing that the secret to overcoming sin is to fuel your hunger for God. If you will feed on Him, remember how your mom said, Don't eat junk food, it'll destroy your appetite? I always found there's a fresh one to follow, but uh, if we feed on him, we won't desire those things. So unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. It's very important we understand that God is not merely interested in getting you to heaven. What he's really interested in is getting heaven to earth He created, in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were created together, they were to function together, and they were never to operate independently. And when man sinned, we severed them, and so what did Jesus do? He came down, not just to redeem us, but Colossians says, by his blood, He reconciled all things, whether things in the heavens or things on earth, by his blood. He's re-merging these two, and he taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to be the conduit, the tethers that tie heaven to earth, and it's to flow through us. That's what God's desire is. It's not merely to get you to heaven. He wants to get heaven to earth, and that starts in you. You are the beachhead of God's invasion. And if he can't secure the the beachhead of your heart, it's never gonna come from you. If it doesn't happen in you, it won't happen through you. So the beginning of this thing is we get saved, we're born again, but then we grow in the grace of God and he conquers more and more territory in us so that he can conquer territory through us. And it's a process, we're born ones, but the, op- the desire of God is that he have many sons. That's what he wants. Mature ones who will express his character. And so the pattern of Jesus is the pattern for us. And so when it says a, son, a child was born, but a son was given, the gift wasn't fully given until the, he entered into sonship. And that's who we've received. Now, look at the very next verse. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. See, this is all about the gospel. Okay, so if we're putting points to this, being a little more organized in our thoughts this morning, the first point is this God is interested in more than getting you to heaven, He wants to get heaven in you. He wants you to operate in the character of the Father, not just the nature, not be a partaker of the divine nature and stop there so that you're forgiven you're heading to heaven, but you don't act like it. He wants to have his character established in you. So much so, if someone said, what's God like? We could say, hey, just check out that group of people up at Heartland Church. If you want to see what God's like, go hang out with them for a while because they act just like him. That's what God desires. Jesus put it this way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that is the marching orders for the church. God wants you to represent, to represent the Father to the human race. And so God is not merely interested in getting you to heaven. He wants to grow you up because He's got work on earth for us to do. Number two, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called. And He goes through these four names. We'll get to that in a moment. And the government shall be upon His shoulders. The Greek word here, or the Hebrew word here, government is Mishra, meaning empire. It's translated, interestingly enough, from the primitive word Sarah, meaning to prevail, dominion, the power to rule. It really is the Old Testament version of the New Testament word Basilea that we translate kingdom, the kingdom of God. The government, the kingdom will be upon his shoulders. But it's interesting, it's translated in most translations with the word government. If you think that God is not interested in government, you have bought into a false doctrine. You have have bought into a truncated gospel. It's only part of the gospel. God is interested in more than you merely getting saved and you having the character of God in you. Okay? He's, more, he's interested more than you merely having heaven as your destination. Number one, he wants the character of God to be exhibited through you. But number two, he wants it to manifest on earth. God is concerned with government. Revelation chapter 11, it says, And the kingdoms of this world became the kingdoms of our God. God is interested in every facet of life. The great theologian Abraham Kuyper, I, I said this a few weeks ago, but I want to say it again. He had this great phrase. He was a theologian. He was also the prime minister of—I uh, want to say it was Denmark. He was the founder of an, an entire church movement, an entire denomination. Theologian, church leader, and prime minister. This guy was an eclectic, had some eclectic interests, but in him they weren't separated. They all found their origin in his faith. And he said this, there is not one square inch on planet earth that Jesus does not look at and, and declare mine. God has opinions about everything and he's not shy on sharing them. God has political opinions. Do you know that? Politics are not something that are, well, you know, I wonder what the Lord thinks. Well, God, God's not of either party. That's true. But he's very clearly aligns himself with certain values. God has very strong opinions. And you and I, this, there's an added dimension to this because our nation is this grand experiment founded upon biblical principles. And it affords us a tremendous level of liberty and therefore responsibility and authority. And God expects you to exercise that authority according to his word. It's called a vote. It's a very, very serious thing. And one of the problems in the United States of America is that the church has abdicated the political realm, the education realm, the entertainment realm the business realm we've divided the sacred and the secular and it's created this this schism where we're christian on sundays well this is christian things but then we go to work on monday and well you, you got to understand we're living in the real world now and that doesn't work here and i'm telling you that is a lie from the pit of hell the principles of the kingdom will manifest the goodness of God in every facet of life when we apply them. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. The empire of God. And lest you think that what this is speaking of some far off kingdom, that that's, that's something we'll enter into someday, or this is only about spiritual matters, the word literally means the authoritative right to rule. And it's placed upon Jesus' shoulders. In the New Testament, we translate, again, the word basilea as kingdom. And in our English, our English translation, our English understanding of kingdoms puts us at a disadvantage of really understanding what the Bible teaches. Because we think of kingdom as a domain, but in actuality, it's dominion. It's not a, it's not a realm it's rule. It's not a place. It's the right to go in and exert influence over a place. That is what the kingdom is. We get it's, it's a compound word in the English, king's dominion, or the princely right to rule, to exert his influence. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do not reduce that to Merely seeing people say the sinner's prayer so they can go to heaven someday. It is asking God that his his rule be exerted in every realm of society and every facet of humanity. We're to pray for wisdom and revelation. If you're a scientist, you need a spirit of wisdom and revelation so you can understand nature and then harness nature to help mankind. And that is a manifestation of the kingdom. If you're a financial advisor, you need a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can bring prosperity to the human race. Because one of the primary manifestations of sin is poverty and the grinding bondage it inflicts on people and drives them and puts them on the precipice of temptation. And God wants to deliver us of those things. So the government shall be upon his shoulders. We need, we need to understand that. Okay, real quick here. And this is what it says. And his name should be called. This, there's four names he gives us. And in these four names, it's almost a parenthetical thought. It's just, he, he gets out a little tangent. to say hey, I want to tell you what his names are. And then he gets back to this theme. So we're going to skip that for just a moment and jump into verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this thing. And so it's this picture of the invading king. And again, we all wait with bated breath. What's it gonna look like? Who's he gonna, it's the son of David. And we expect this, this majestic one to step onto the stage of history and instead it's a little baby that crawls on Into the spotlight. And that's how God always begins. The seed and not the tree. It's the acorn and not the oak tree. And of the increase of his government. Now we need to understand, when this was declared, Israel was about ready to go into a tremendously dark period of their existence. And even more so, when it came to fruition, this word was a messianic word of Jesus' birth. We look around us and get, get distressed about the state of affairs in our nation. But I'm telling you, it was nothing like the Jewish people were living under in the birth of Jesus. Murder was a, a source of entertainment. The governmental rule, it was tyrants who had the, the ability to kill at will, they had no accountability. They were maniacs, some of these guys. Fathers had the right to ch- kill their own children. Slavery was just a, a, a normal operations and slaves, were, slaves and women were like livestock. You could kill it at, at will. And it was into this thing, this, this scenario, this darkness, this oppressive environment that Jesus came as a little seed, as a little infant. It's, it seems ludicrous. I mean, think about that. This is where she, this is all of history had culminated in that state of affairs and what's God's answer? Wah, wah. This is how we're going to turn events, the hinge upon which history will swing. Wah, wah. But God revolutionized history. He overturned the Roman Empire through the life in that child. If God could do that through a single life, how much more can he do that now through the many lives? Jesus said, except the kernel of grain fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it will be released into the many kernels. And that's you and I. And there are acres and acres and acres of waving grain in the form of believers that if we get a hold of what he's saying here, the government shall be upon his shoulders. We are the answer. And listen to what it says. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Make no mistake about it. The kingdom of God is always advancing, always growing. There there can be battles that we lose because God chooses to operate through frail human beings. But I'm telling you that the kingdom of God is always advancing. Become the prisoner of that hope and look from that perspective. Because if you look, if you zero too much in on circumstances, it can create despair and some other unseemly behavior. But we need to be prisoners of hope. Of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. You look at where, where things started with Jesus' birth and where we are today. Human rights, the value of women and children, and these are all the results of the gospel wherever the gospel goes, the value of man is elevated. It's an amazing thing. So let's look at these, these four names real quick here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. So here, let me, let me just go through these real quick and, and uh, tell you what these mean. Wonderful Counselor, the word wonderful is miracle. It, it means, literally in the, in the Hebrew, it's something unusual that makes it hard to comprehend. It causes you to wonder. It, cause, it, it, it elicits awe within the human soul. Counselor, one who gives guidance in the problem situations. See, what, what's going on here is Isaiah, because he's releasing this prophetic word in an hour of such tyrannical abuse by human authority, He says there's gonna be absolute rule exercised by this coming king. And even the one whose name he will bear, the son of David, even David fell into abuse. Having the, he, he committed adultery with one of his most loyal soldiers' wives and then had him killed so he could take her as his own. The only one who can be trusted with this level of authority is King Jesus. I find myself praying in the morning. As we're praying for our nation, I find myself praying, Lord, the only one worthy to be the one world governmental ruler is you. You are the only one with the character that can handle that level of authority. Nobody else can be trusted. So Lord, we say, not on our watch until you return. And then we will gladly bend the knee to be you to being the one world ruler. He's a wonderful counselor. We've talked about this before, but the whole idea, the the phrase, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, that was Jesus' message. It was the message that introduced Jesus through the mouth of his cousin, John the Baptizer. It was the message that Jesus preached. It was the one he taught his disciples to preach. It was the only thing he taught on that's mentioned in the 40 days after his resurrection before his ascension. It says he spent that time teaching on the kingdom. And it's the one we're told as his disciples to pray and to preach. The gospel of the kingdom. But what does that phrase mean? The gospel is good news and the kingdom is king dominion. The good news of the king's dominion. But it's only good news if the king is good. Because if he has absolute dominion and he is not good it is not good news. This is really bad news. And so that's why Isaiah stops and said, wait a minute, I want you to understand the names and the nature. Because in in biblical thought, a name would describe the nature of the person who bore that name. And I want you to understand the nature of this king. Because when you understand his nature, you'll welcome his rule into your life. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. In, In Hebrew, it's El Gabor. The word mighty is a warrior, a champion, valiant and even violent one. He will will violently remove all obstacles so that the way back to him is paved for you. He's the mighty warrior. Lest we think this king is merely a brilliant man, he's a mighty one. And then it says, everlasting father, And Isaiah's not unclear, you know, he's not like, well, you know, this is before the Trinity, so he's kind of, you know, before the revelation of the Trinity. Matter of fact, we don't have time to get into this, but the Jewish people did have the the two manifestations in their theology of the word of God and of, of God himself. Maybe we'll get into some teaching on that sometime. But what he's saying is that Jesus would carry the expression of the Father, the Father's heart, the everlasting Father, the forever Dad. Jesus will be the forever Dad. Now, for some of you, that doesn't conjure up great images. You're like, I'm kind of glad I'm not in my dad's home anymore. That's because your dad was a poor expression of the original. And all of us are. But the heart of God As a father who fathers us well and provides for us. Jesus comes as the everlasting father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then finally, the prince of peace. I believe that's a reference to the Melchizedek priesthood that he, he walked in. Melchizedek was the prince of Salem or the king of Salem, Jerusalem, that eventually became that city. He is a chieftain of completeness, wholeness, wellness, and prosperity. The prince whose rule brings wholeness. That word peace is shalom in the Hebrew, but it means wholeness, prosperity, blessing. Every your restoration is in that word peace. He's the chieftain whose rule in your life will bring restoration to every facet of your life. Tell you, that is good news. Unto you a child is born, but unto us a child is given, or son is given. He paid the price. He passed every test so that he could pass on the inheritance to you and I. So what does that mean? Child to sonship. Three things. Oh man, I'm I'm already over. I'm just gonna read them off. In the span of one lifetime, From the birth to the death, God would alter history. Jesus would become the hinge upon which all history swings. Even our calendars bear this out. Wherever the gospel goes, dignity is restored and prosperity ensues. When I say prosperity, I mean the the circumstances of man are elevated. Anybody ever read the book, Bruchko? It's by a guy named Bruce Olson. Bruce Olson was a young 19-year-old kid from St. Paul, Minnesota. Felt called to missions, went to a missions board and said, would you send me to the jungles of Colombia and Venezuela? And they said, you're too young, go get some training. And he thought, I'm called. So he just hitched a plane, landed there, and marched off into the jungle. About a decade and a half later, he marched out and this whole culture had been transformed by the gospel. It's an amazing story. He he preached to the Matalon Bari Indians of Colombia and Venezuela. And they they were a warring tribes that really lived in prehistoric ways. And he's still there some 60 years later. Now they have their own universities, their own doctors that have been trained, medical doctors that have been trained in their own universities. These were people who lived in huts. Very prehistoric existence. The gospel came and all of society rose with it. It's an amazing story. And you see that again and again all throughout history. Okay, so it's a span of one lifetime from his birth to his giving. It was, the proce- it was a process, not an event. God starts with the seed and grows it into a tree. Matt, Adam was made a man. The second Adam was born a baby. God always starts with the seed. We don't have time to get any more of that. The child... Born is Christmas. The son given is Good Friday. The child could take care of your past. The son provides for your future. The child could have provided forgiveness for your failures, but it took the son to provide grace for future victory. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.